So I'll be reading in Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let's try the reading of God's word. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord, we acknowledge that our faith is often so frail, that our courage and our boldness is often so lacking, and our affections are often so misdirected. So Lord, use your word this morning to strengthen our weak faith, to increase our faltering courage and boldness, and to direct our affections to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When these words that you just heard read were first read to the church in Smyrna, who they were originally delivered to, there was likely sitting in the congregation a young man in his early 20s who had been discipled by the letter writer and distributor himself, the Apostle John. And this young man's name was Polycarp. Now, some of you may have heard of that name, and the reason that name has notoriety and significance is because 60 years after the church in Smyrna heard this letter read in their hearing, Jesus called Polycarp to live out one of the commands to his fullest, most literal extent. Be faithful unto death. Polycarp is the first ever recorded martyrdom that we have outside of the New Testament because he was one who faithfully followed Jesus onto the point of death. So here is a faithful recounting of the martyrdom of Polycarp. The crowd in the stadium began to shout in growing unison, We want Polycarp, their leader. Death to the godless. Death to Polycarp. And soon that chant sounded throughout the whole arena. Death to the godless. Death to Polycarp. Well, then the order was given, and a small troop left from the Colosseum to arrest Polycarp, the leader of the church in Smyrna. When the soldiers found Polycarp, they rushed him into the arena and hauled him before the Roman governor of the province. Upon seeing Polycarp, the crowd erupted once again with a roar. Death to the godless. Death. To Polycarp. Dressed in an embroidered robe of purple and gold, the governor stood in the imperial box, glaring down at Polycarp in his dusty, dirty tunic. He waved his hand and quieted the crowd. Are you Polycarp, the teacher of the Christians? The governor asked. I am, Polycarp answered. Have respect for the honor of your old age, the governor said. Swear by Caesar and save yourself. Point to the Christian prisoners there and say, Away with the godless. Well, Polycarp turned from the direction of the Christian prisoners, instead pointing his finger to the stadium crowd and said, Away with the godless. The people gnashed their teeth at the insult. How dare he call us godless? You have to understand, when you do not worship the Roman imperial uh, you know, uh, gods, you're viewed as an atheist, a godless. Well, Polycarp had other ideas about that. Polycarp stood, or the governor made a second offer to Polycarp. Swear the oath to Caesar, saying Caesar is Lord, 
and I will release you. Deny Christ. Polycarp stood straight and answered in a clear voice. For 86 years, I have been his servant and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Swear by Caesar, the governor shouted once again. You try in vain to get me to swear by Caesar. Hear me plainly. I am a Christian. I have wild beasts here. I will throw you to them unless you change your mind, threatened the governor. And Polycarp responded calmly and resolutely. Call for them. If the wild beasts strike no fear in you, then we will give you over to be burned. And with each threat, Polycarp only seemed to grow in courage and boldness. You threaten me with fire that burns for a little while and goes out. But you are ignorant of the eternal fire which is prepared for the ungodly. Why do you wait? Come and do what you want with me. And his soldiers tied Polycarp to a post and surrounded him with straw and oil-soaked kindling and timber. His final words came in the form of a prayer of praise. I praise you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour so that in the company of the martyrs I may share in the cup of Christ. And shortly after that prayer, Polycarp entered into the glory of his master and heard, well done, good and faithful servant. That was someone who was sitting in the congregation when that letter was written. And when you hear that story, you know, from our historical and cultural vantage point, we have usually one of two reactions. One is, I could never be that bold. I could never be that courageous in those circumstances. I, I can't even go in the water in the ocean when it's a yellow flag. What's, what's the point? Well, that kind of thinking makes too much of Polycarp and too little of God. Polycarp is made of the same stuff as you are. He is a man, and the best men are men at best. And he has the same father who redeemed him, that redeemed us. He knows the same son who died to forgive his sins, who died to forgive us of our sins. And the same spirit that dwelt in him and filled him with boldness and courage is the same spirit who dwells in all believers. God did not run out of his courage or his supply of courage and boldness in the first century. He didn't just have it for them, and there's none left for us. He has plenty to go around. Or maybe your reaction goes something like this. I'm never going to have to face a situation like that. That is so foreign and far from my experience. So what's the point? Well, you're right. You likely will never have to face such a situation and experience like that. In fact, less than 1% of Christians throughout history have had to face a similar situation like that and belong in the category of martyrs. But the command that Polycarp heard that day when the letter was read in his congregation is the same command to you. Be faithful no matter the cost. Be faithful on to death. We will likely never have to demonstrate the kind of faithfulness to Christ that Polycarp did. But should we not all desire to love and cherish Christ as Polycarp did? We should desire, like Polycarp, that we would cling to nothing more tightly than we cling to Christ. And we should desire, like Polycarp, that we would be willing to forsake everything else because we are not willing to forsake Christ. The command is the same to him as it was to us. Its outworkings will be different, but we need to hear its message just as much as he did. And so this is Jesus' message to the church. In this world, church, you will face tribulation. 
but remain fearless and faithful no matter the cost because Christ has overcome this world and promises us life and life abundantly. So church, you will face tribulation. It's going to look different than it did for Polycarp perhaps, but remain fearless and faithful no matter the cost for Christ has overcome the world and he promises you life and real life, abundant life. So we're going to unpack that message by considering three lessons from this letter of Jesus to the church in Smyrna. And the first is this. We're to remain fearless and faithful to Christ. And in order to do that, we must expect hostility from this world. To remain fearless and faithful, no matter the cost, we must learn to expect hostility from this world. Recently, there was a news story that came out of our own county here, Palm Beach County. It was of a man who was killed by an alligator while he was collecting frisbees from a pond in a popular frisbee golf course. And now, that is tragic and it's sad news, but the story went on to recount that in that pond and around that pond, there were multiple signs placed all over that said, do not enter, beware of alligators. And this individual had been asked multiple times not to go in that pond to fetch frisbees. And so in one sense, the expectations were set for this individual of what would happen. Well, in a similar way, We need to know that posted throughout the Bible are warning signs that this fallen world filled with fallen people is hostile to God and his kingdom and his people. They're all over the Bible. Warning signs saying, do not think that this world is always going to be friendly and favorable towards you. In fact, it is hostile to you. One of those warning signs is placed in Genesis 3. And we see that there's an enemy of our souls, a serpent who slithers into the garden seeking to spread doubt and deception among the people of God because he is hostile to God and he will not have people follow him. Another warning sign is placed in the Exodus story where we see a whole kingdom of Egypt, Pharaoh, ruling over them, enslaving and murdering the people of God up to the point that God then drowned him in the sea of judgment. And then we come to the Gospels. And there's another warning sign of the hostility from the world in the Gospels. Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. He came full of grace and truth, and he was received with hatred and hostility. The religious leaders who he came to, his own people, conspired with the political leaders who they considered their enemy, but the enemy, my enemy is my friend, and they sought to silence the Lord for good, or so they thought. But before his crucifixion at the hands of wicked men, Jesus sat down his disciples in an upper room and he gave them this word. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. You know, once we we know as conservative Christians that the prosperity gospel is not true. It has no biblical basis at all. But isn't there a part of you that thinks, I kind of wish the prosperity gospel were true, that I just believe in Jesus and a gold brick would be lying at my front door when I get home. I just come here and I take communion, I I give my offering, and a hundredfold is showing up at my door. You will find zero promises for this life of prosperity in the Bible. You will find none. In fact, you'll find the opposite. And it's Evidence again with the church in Smyrna. This is another warning sign to expect hostility from this fallen world. And for the church in Smyrna, their hostility came from three main sources that we see in the text. One of them, which we know kind of from behind the text, was political hostility, that the governing authorities that they lived under were hostile to them. So Smyrna was a place that prided itself 
on its patriotic loyalty and allegiance to Rome and its emperor. In fact, in Smyrna, in 25 AD, so probably 70 years or so before this letter was written, they built a temple as tribute to Emperor Tiberius to show their loyalty to Rome and its empire. And so for them, in Rome, there was no distinction between religion and politics. We talk about separation of church and state. They didn't know those terms. They didn't have those terms. They didn't have those categories at all. The religion of the day was to honor and worship the emperor of the day. Religion and politics went hand in hand. And so for Christians, we understand when we read the scriptures that yes, Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, were to honor the political authorities that God has placed over us, but only insofar as it doesn't interfere with our ultimate allegiance, which is to Christ and Christ alone. We understand that we're, we're citizens of two kingdoms. We live on two planes, as it were. We live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, which has our ultimate allegiance, that's our ultimate residence, and yet we do dwell in this world. So we're to honor, we're to engage in the politics, the political realm, but only insofar as it does not interfere with our worship of Christ and Christ alone. Well, they were put to the test with those measures because Rome didn't make those distinctions and they didn't like those distinctions. Well, then there was religious hostility, as you see in verse nine. Look at verse nine of your text. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. If you thought Jesus was one who just said nice things to nice people, you know, nice stuff all the time, this, this will help disabuse you of that notion. Jesus tells it as it is. These people who rejected their Messiah are no longer the people of God. In fact, a Jew is not one outwardly, but only inwardly by faith in Christ. You are children of Abraham if you believe in Christ. And so for these Jews who rejected the Messiah, they saw an opportunity to get in well with Rome. So if the political hostility from Rome was like a gas leak in the house, the Jews lit the match with their slander and caused an explosion. Because in order for the Jews to win and maintain favor with the political authorities of the day, they gave them the names and the whereabouts of the Christians to the, the political leaders of the day. Because most of the converts in this church probably came from Jewish synagogues. You see that the normal mode of the missionary operation of the early church was to go to these places and first go to the synagogues and preach the gospel. And many got saved in these, but they knew who you were. They knew where you lived. And then they turned you over because they wanted to win favor with the political leaders of the day. But Jesus points out that behind and underneath these visible forces of hostility is this, this invisible force of satanic hostility, of spiritual warfare. Look at the beginning of verse 10 in your text. Jesus says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. The lady said that the Jews were a synagogue of Satan because of their slander, they were speaking the devil's native tongue. So one of the functions of the book of Revelation, as we're going to see as we go throughout it, is it's designed to help us see and perceive unseen realities that lie behind seen realities, that we walk by faith and not by sight. And so Revelation helps unveil and pull back the curtain on, on what is really going on. And it shows us that in this world, we're to expect hostility, not just because there's political and religious systems that are against Christianity, but because we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers and the spiritual forces of this present evil age. 
that we will suffer hostility because there is a lion who prowls around seeking someone to devour. As Lewis, C.S. Lewis said, the enemy will not see you vanish into God's company without an effort to reclaim you. Or, and I would add, not, you shouldn't probably add to C.S. Lewis quotes, but I'm going to try. <laughs> or if he can't reclaim you, he at least wants to make your stay more miserable or less effective. That's his goal. Either an effort to reclaim you or make your stay more miserable or make you less effective in your stay here on earth. And so what all that means for us is that we need to know that faithfulness to Christ will at times and in various ways mean facing hostility from this fallen world, which means there's a choice in one sense laid before you. What is most valuable to you? The favor of this world or the favor of Christ? Favor with this world or faithfulness to Christ? Because when we face that hostility, it does put before us the choice of our priorities. What do we value most? What is most important to us? The smile and well done, good and faithful servant of Christ or the smile and well done of this world? Or to put it negatively, what good is it to gain all the favor of this world and forfeit our faithfulness to Christ? So we need to know that we are to expect hostility from this world. Second lesson from our passage is this. To remain fearless and faithful to Christ, we must anticipate tribulations of various kinds in this life. We must anticipate tribulations of various kinds in this world. So the hostility of the world that we just considered in the last point, it doesn't just remain a a feeling of animosity because for the believers in Smyrna, it manifested itself in tangible action against them. And so in verse nine, Jesus says, I know your tribulation. So so what is tribulation? When Jesus speaks of tribulation, he, he does mean something specific. We think of, maybe think of it in two categories. You have suffering, which is a broad category of anything that we experience as a hardship in this fallen world. Tribulation is one of those subcategories of suffering. And tribulation is when we experience trouble and harm and difficult circumstances, even threats from forces that are hostile to our witness to Christ, to our faithfulness to Christ. So it's specific harm and hardship that comes to us because we are seeking to be faithful to Christ. And we can discern from this letter that the believers in Smyrna, they face four different kinds of tribulation in their time. And in fact, when we think of tribulation, there's two ways we should think about it. One is think about it like flaming arrows that the evil one is shooting at us because he wants to destroy our faith. He's aiming at something we value to see if we value it more than Christ so that he can destroy our faith or diminish it. But what he intends for evil, God intends for good. And so our tribulations are intended or superintended by Christ to develop and display our faith. That we are not left to the devices and resources of ourselves. In fact, we have a sovereign Christ who overrules all things and what Satan intends for evil, he intends for good. So while Satan is seeking to destroy our faith, Christ is using that very arrow that's aimed at our destruction to develop and strengthen and display our faith to a world that desperately needs to see it. So the first flaming arrow of tribulation was aimed at their earthly stuff, their earthly possessions. Look at verse nine in your text. I know your tribulation, and then he lists one, and your poverty. 
So Jesus wasn't just commenting on their economic status. He's not just saying, because you're not in the 1%, I feel bad for you. What he is commenting on is one of the effects of the tribulation that they were facing as Christians. Most likely, because of their refusal to participate in the pagan practices of their day, they lost out on employment opportunities. They were boycotted in business deals and probably even faced the realities that we hear about in Hebrews 10.34, where it describes believers whose possessions were plundered, whose stuff was confiscated by the government. And so a trial like that, when your earthly stuff is aimed at, forces us to ask some questions. Is Christ more valuable than my earthly stuff? Is my heart with my treasure in heaven, or is it chained to my earthly stuff here below? And the way Christ used this is in a world that loves money, who worships the God of money. It says on our, on our back of your bill, it says, in God we trust. And the irony of that is that is some of the only, that's the only God that most people trust in. Our world desperately needs to see people who use money and have money and lose money in such a way that it displays that money is not their God. God is their God. That there is something more valuable, more precious, more secure, more stable than money. And you see that the tremors of it now with you know, the economy and interest rates and all these different things. And people are, are terrified and anxious and overwhelmed because their God is being threatened. But we need to remain firm because ours is not. The second flaming arrow of tribulation was aimed at their earthly reputation. Verse 9, as we already pointed out, the Jews were slandering them. They were spreading lies about sedition and political insurrection and uh, insubordination, all these things. And so for these Christians... Everywhere they walked, they had to know that their character was being defamed, their name was being smeared, and there was false accusations spread all around about them. And now someone has said that slander is like squeezing toothpaste. It's really easy to get it out of the tube, but it's really hard to get it back in. If slander is spread about you, it, it goes fast and it goes far, and our world loves a good juicy slander, but it's almost impossible to put it back, to set it right. You have to live with that harmed reputation hanging over you for a long time. And so when facing this tribulation, the question we're to ask ourselves, is Christ more valuable than my earthly reputation? Is it enough to know that Christ thinks well of me even if all the world thinks ill of me? Am I willing to be called a bigot because I will not budge on the Bible's ethical standards? Can you say with that eight-year-old at the playground in elementary school, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Or do you want to retaliate? Do you want to get even? Is your reputation of such value to you that you're going to get back at them? Well, the third flaming arrow was aimed at their earthly comfort. Look at verse 10 with me in your text. It says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. So he mentions the prospect of prison for them. And their prison system was different than ours. Don't think of incarceration, a holding cell, taxpayer funded, all that stuff. Roman prisons were designed to make your stay very uncomfortable because they were designed and used to try and compel and coerce your obedience to the government. In fact, the whole prison stay was designed to deprive you of comforts and even you were threatened or afflicted with actual punishments so that you would reconsider all your life choices and your political stances up to that point. It was not a comfortable place. 
And we have the testimony of many Christians in the book of Acts who were into these, sent into these prisons. But what is amazing is they turn these prison walls into music halls, as it were. Think of the Philippian jailer. The Philippian jailer was converted in part because Paul and Silas were singing hymns and psalms and songs in that prison in Philippi. Or there's a hymn that was written, and it was written in Switzerland in a prison by the daughter of William Booth, who founded the Salvation Army, and she wrote these lines in prison. Best beloved of my soul, I am here alone with thee, and my prison is a heaven since you share it with me. And so in these moments, we're to ask, where is our ultimate comfort found? Is there a comfort in this world that I'm holding onto so tightly that if it were threatened, I would not be faithful to Christ? Is my comfort found so securely in Christ that no amount of harm done to my earthly comfort can touch it? Or is it very vulnerable? Is it very insecure because it is deeply invested in the temporary things of earth? Well, the last flaming dart was aimed at their earthly life. Jesus tells them at the end of verse 10, be faithful unto death. And for some, like Polycarp we read about, they had to live that out to its literal conclusion. Some would have to pay the ultimate price. But for all of us, we have to ask hard questions. Is Christ more valuable to us than life itself? Like the psalmist says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Or is Christ only valuable to the extent that he makes your life here better? Is Christ more valuable than life itself, or is he only valuable to the extent that he makes life here better? And I know for many, they are fed a truncated or false gospel that tells them kind of the infomercial gospel. If you buy Jesus in the next you know, 25 minutes at this low price, everything will be better. All the stains will go away. All the problems will go away. And that's not always how it works out. In fact, I remember... This was a number of years ago in the church. A lady came up to me afterwards and I had preached in the Gospel of Matthew about how Jesus says, you need to be willing to forsake family, father, brother, sister, mother for Christ. And I thought, this is so irrelevant to these people. Like, I, But it's in the text and I got to preach it. And she came up to me afterwards and she said, thank you for preaching that because right now I'm in a situation where I'm realizing my faithfulness to Christ means that I'm losing my husband. And, and it did end up happening for her. And yet she's still faithful to Christ today and is a testimony of what you'd have to endure sometimes in this life for Christ. And we need to be able to say with the Apostle Paul, for his sake, I have or am willing to suffer the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Well, we just looked at the tribulations they had to go through and how Satan aims to destroy and Christ aims to develop and display faith. But I think it's important to pause here and ask this question. Why don't we as Christians here and now really have to deal with these kinds of tribulations? Why is this so uncommon and so foreign to our experience? And I think there's a couple ways to answer that question. One of them is let's not forget that though we sit here comfortably now with this freedom, there are many gathered around the world today who do not sit with that same comfort and that same freedom. In fact, there are many brothers and sisters in Christ around the globe for whom this letter carries extreme relevance to their everyday life. In fact, if you go to the Voice of the Martyrs website online, 
you can read a long list of prayer requests that are recent, as recent as yesterday, giving prayer requests of those who are suffering tribulation on account of their faith in Christ. In fact, I read of one woman in India who become a believer through the gospel and whose brother-in-law shot her because she did not renounce her faith in Christ and was forsaking the family. That happened October 6th. So that's one answer to the question. Also, we should thank God that we live in a country where religious freedom is a constitutional right and protection and religious persecution is a punishable offense. That is not something to feel bad about. I know when we hear about tribulation and the suffering church and martyrs, we must think, I guess I probably should wish I was born in Pakistan or North Korea or something like that. That's not how you should feel. You should be grateful that the influence of the gospel and the impact of a Christian world that has had a hand in shaping the society is one in which we're allowed to come here and gather as we are. That is not something to feel guilty about, something to thank God for and be grateful for. So those are, those are two answers, but here's one that I think is helpful to consider. Perhaps an equally true answer to the question, why don't we suffer tribulation, is that we, we don't suffer any persecution or harm because we know all the right ways to avoid it. We've done all the right things to avoid it. Vody Bauckham put it very straightforward. Persecution is easy to avoid. All you have to do is compromise. Persecution is very easy to avoid. All you have to do is compromise. We know that there are particular biblical doctrines, ethical standards that are not looked upon with cultural favor. There are things that we know that if we said to certain individuals, certain people, certain institutions, that they would not look favorably upon. And so we can do things like we can apologize for them, we can keep them hidden, we can dilute them, or we can even try and redefine them from the Bible. And that's compromise. That's, that's the easiest way. If you're looking for a sermon today on how to avoid persecution, that's, that's the sermon. Just compromise. And compromise with the culture is a fruit of being more concerned and focused on the praise of man than we are the praise of Christ. Compromise comes when wanting the good opinion of man means more to us than the well-done, good, and faithful servant of Christ. It's because the world has increased and Christ has decreased. And that's why this last lesson from our passage is so vital. To remain fearless and faithful, we need to consider the encouragement we have in Christ. Fearlessness that can endure, a, a faith that remains steady and anchored, does not come from looking to self. It does not come from going through the first two points of that sermon feeling guilty and then saying, I'm going to try harder next week. Fearlessness and faithfulness does not come from giving yourself some ridiculous motivational speech. You know, you're capable, you're strong, you can do anything you put your mind to. That's baloney, okay? That's what the world will give, that's the advice the world will give. You're not capable, you're not strong enough, you cannot do everything you put your mind to, okay? I just want to let you know that. Because the world will always direct you to self. The world always says all that you need, you have within yourself. Look nowhere else. That is the exact opposite counsel the Bible gives. The Bible says fearlessness and faithfulness comes from looking to Christ, not looking to self. Fearlessness and faithfulness do not grow on the tree of self-driven effort. They only grow on the tree of being rooted and abiding in Christ. And the Apostle Paul learned this lesson the hard way. Philippians 4, 12, and 13, he said this, 
I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So he covers everything. And he says this, I can do all things through, not self. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That is where fearlessness and faithfulness comes from. And just in case you're wondering, Paul wasn't talking about winning the national championship or the Super Bowl when he said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He means I can endure all circumstances and situations in faithfulness to Christ because he strengthens me. So we should be fearless because our text points us to the sovereignty of Christ. Look at verse eight. When Jesus introduces himself to this church, he does so in such a way that he's speaking truths to them that are relevant to their situation. He says, I am the first and the last. So Jesus is the first. He is the source of all things. Nothing came into being that he didn't cause to be, and nothing is in being that he doesn't sustain and uphold its existence by the word of his power. And then Jesus is the last. He is the goal, the destination of all things. He, with his sovereign hands, is taking all the threads of all the events of history and weaving them together in such a way that in the end we will say, from you and through you and to you are all things. To you be glory forever. Amen. And so since he's the first and the last, that means he's the Lord of everything in between. And so for the suffering church in Smyrna and for every believer, this should be a great encouragement because it means that we're never left to ourselves. We're never left to our own resources and our own devices. We're never at the mercy of hostile forces and just blind fate. We just sang about that in our opening hymn. I'm going to change the words a little bit. Christ is sovereign in all affairs of man. No powers of death or darkness can thwart his perfect plan. All evil overruling as none but conqueror could. His love pursues this purpose, your soul's eternal good. You can always hold on to those truths in the midst of the hardest circumstances. Think of Joseph, who had gone through suffering, tribulation at the hand of his brothers. Now, he probably shouldn't have told them his dream and made them feel jealous. But nonetheless, he gets sold into slavery, thrown into prison, falsely accused, left in prison alone. And then his brothers come to him, and instead of getting even retaliating against them for all the harm they caused him, what does he say? I forgive you. Because what you meant for evil, God meant for good to bring about the salvation of many people. He could see the hand of God ruling and overruling and it gave him much comfort, even in much sorrow. We should be fearless because of the victory of Christ as well. Look at verse eight again. Jesus says, I'm the first and the last and the one who died and came to life. So Jesus lays out for the believers, reminds them of the path that he went. He went through death and came out into life. Every tribulation that is referred to in this text, Jesus himself has endured and he's endured in a way that he came out the other side victorious as the conqueror, the one who overcame. So every tribulation that every Christian will ever have to face, Christ can look at you in the midst of that tribulation and say, I know, I've endured that myself, but take heart, I have overcome that tribulation. The son of man had no place to lay his head. The son of man was slandered and falsely accused as no one ever had been before. He was crucified at the hands of Roman soldiers, and yet he is victorious. He knows tribulation to its most bitter end because he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he did not return evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but in continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. And the wonder, the wonder of Christ's victory is even though 
You contributed absolutely nothing to the victory of Christ. You get to share fully in it as if you were the one who had accomplished it. You know, we, we have this in sports where we, we have our team. And when they win, we say, we won. Even though you, you weren't on the field, you didn't suit up, you didn't even wash the towels for the team. But there's this, this union with that, that team that you align with. Well, it's a small, faint picture of union with Christ. In union with Christ, all that is ours becomes his. Our sins becomes his, and he puts them to death. And all that is his becomes ours. His victory is ours. And so we can say that the crown of life is going to be ours because the crown of thorns was his. And that's what he promises to believers. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life because he wore the crown of thorns for us. And we need not fear tribulation because in Christ we are freed and spared from what we should fear most. That in Christ we have been saved from the wrath of God. Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot destroy the soul, but fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Look at verse 11, the last verse there. He was an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So the Bible speaks about two births and two deaths. The first birth and the first death is of a physical nature, and it's something that every single human being, whoever lives, regardless of their spiritual status, has and will participate in. But your participation in the second death depends on if you've experienced the second birth. Remember when Jesus, Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night and he, he says to him, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom. How can I crawl back into my mother's womb? And kids ask these questions, you know, when they hear about birth, and they ask all these strange questions. Nicodemus asks, how can that happen? Jesus says, no, this is a different birth. This is one that's wrought by the spirit. That is a sovereign birth by grace. And so the Bible says in one sense, you're born once, you die twice. Born twice, you die only once. And the second death is one of those truths that is hard for us to stomach, let alone the culture. It's one of those truths that we want to dilute, we want to redefine because it is not palatable at all. The second death, as we'll read about in Revelation 20 and 21, refers to the eternal conscious punishment that all who do not know and love Christ will have to suffer in hell at the hands of the wrath of God. That is an unpopular truth. And yet, for those who have been born only once, for those who reject Christ, who rebel against him, who want to live their own way, who want to live for this world, they will die twice, and the second one will be far worse than the first. But for those who know that they are dead in their trespasses, that they need the mercy of God who makes them alive together with Christ and raises them up and seats them with him in the heavenly places, you only die once, and you will never have to face the second death. Which means that no matter how much you endure physically, how much tribulation and trouble you suffer in this life, it all has an expiration date. It will all end someday. And at that moment, you will be translated into the joy of your master for all eternity. A Christian knows that death shall be the funeral of all his sins, all his sorrows, all his afflictions, all his persecutions, and death shall be the resurrection of all his hopes, all his joys, all his comforts, all his gladness. This is what sustained Polycarp. You threaten me with fire that can burn for a little while and then is quenched, but you do not know about the eternal fire prepared for the godless. Polycarp could look at that fire and those flames that were going to lick him, and he could stand courage and courageous and bold because he knew that the second death would not touch him. 
So if we live this life only for our comforts and pleasures and for the favor of the world, we shall have none in the life to come. But if we live this life for Christ, faithfully following him, no matter the cost, we shall experience a fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore that far outweigh all the hardships of this life, that make all the fears of tribulation grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So in this world, church, you will face tribulation, but remain fearless and faithful no matter the cost, for Christ has overcome and he promises us life. Well, would you turn with me your bulletin to page eight for this responsive conclusion to our Revelation sermons? Because all these sermons, they have one point, overarching point. Long for the return of Christ. Long for the new heavens and new earth. So let me read the words in italics here to this responsive conclusion. You respond with the words in bold. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, where we know that we... What we need, we lack in and of ourselves. And yet, though we are weak, yet you are strong. So Lord, may we know the sufficiency of your grace. May we know the the comfort of your support, your anchor. May we know that you are a refuge that the righteous can run into and have safety. And Lord, may we know that no matter what we face in this world, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And that is our ultimate safety. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, having heard this word about trials and tribulation, let's sing about them on page 9 and 10 of our bulletin as we sing together. How firm a foundation. Would you please stand with me?